we are in our new series called Strangers in a Strange Land. Now, I don't ever know if you've ever been a stranger. Or what, you, you, I mean, we all know what it's like, whether you're starting a new job, whether you're uh, starting your first day at school, whether you're new to the church. Uh, we feel a little bit strange. And this week, I, was, I had that really impressed upon me. I, I was at a lunch, uh, I had a lunch with a, uh, somebody from our church, and I get a text from Scott Cap, who's our missions pastor at the Sugar Grove campus, and he goes, I have a surprise for you. Where are you? I said, I'm at Panera. So he goes, I'll be right over. So he comes over and he, he pulls out my passport and it's stamped with a visa to India. Uh, I'm headed to India to do an exploratory mission trip on behalf of our church along with Scott Cap, just the two of us. Uh, we'll be going from November 14th through November 30th. And I'm looking this over and I see it. it it's just a visual reminder to me that I'm going to a foreign land and I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, I've been studying on the history uh, of India, I mean, uh, trying to encapsulate this very, very huge ancient country and trying to understand the different languages and the different people groups and all the different religions that are there. I mean, it's, it's hard to encapsulate a billion people. But as I, I look at this, I, I, I look at this visa and I, I keep going, you know, I'm a little nervous about going whenever you're traveling. I'm going to be away from home. I miss my family. And I think that's the biggest and hardest thing is knowing that I'm going to be away from my family. And it, and it makes me want to go back home. And that, but I look at that visa and I go, you know what? I can't be there very long because the visa is only set for a certain amount of time. And then I have to return home. So, but while I'm there, I'm going to be a stranger in a strange land. I'm going to make, I'm going to do my best to make my journey and, and enjoy the time that I have there to learn, to be a witness, to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says, as we just saw within our passage today, that we're strangers in a strange land. That we have an expiration date in our time here. Do you know that? We all do. I mean, we have an expiration date. We're all going to die one day, and we're going to go to our real home. Uh, if you're a believer, you go into glory in the presence of Jesus Christ. If you're not, then you go to a, a Christless eternity apart from him. But when we, we know that while we're strangers, that means several different things for us. How, I mean, if we are strangers, how are we to live? How are we to behave? I had to fill out this application with this ministry that we're going with that just kind of outlined what's expected of you. Well, that's what Peter's laying out for us. He says, these are the expectations I have for you while you're here on this earth. And I want you to apply it to your life because you are truly a stranger in a strange land. So today we're going to see how Peter has written to us on how we are to behave while we are here on this earth until we get home to glory with them. But before we get further into that, let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you speak through me right now, broken a vessel though I am. And Lord, I pray that your spirit, uh, by your, through your word that you have made alive, might touch each one of us and draw us nearer to yourself, that we might walk closer with you and that your name might receive glory through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, let's see what God has for us through Peter as we jump right into this. This letter starts off with Peter, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's laying out his identification. Now, we need to understand what's going on during this period of time. Uh, we see that he is an apostle, which was one of those 12 designated individuals that Jesus had set apart to be special ministers for him that had been there at the very beginning of his ministry and that had gone on and seen the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've talked about Peter in our last series, uh, actually a couple series, last year's series, which was on Mark, because the book of Mark came as an um, eyewitness account as Peter gave it to Mark to write down. 
Now, if you're unaware of what's going on at this time, there was a tremendous, just persecution was just really beginning. I mean, it was there, but it hadn't cultivated to its entirety yet. Now, Paul, Peter is writing from Rome. Some believe that Paul had already been killed. And we, we get the date of this about 62 to 63, or it could be more like 64 to 67 A.D. Because uh, we know that there was a persecution that started by this, uh, the Caesar Nero. Now, Nero, uh, he, he, he was a, I don't know how else to put it, but he was a lunatic, is what he was. I mean, he, uh, the history books say or estimate that he lit the city of Rome on fire and then played a violin as it burned. And then he blamed it all on Christians that they caused the fire, and then he used the Christians as sport. What he did is he put them in animals' cloaks, and he put them into the Colosseum and let the animals throw the Christians apart. Or he took the Christians and put them up on poles, doused them with kerosene, and lit them on fire so they would keep the street lights lit. So when people say that it's bad today, it's not near as bad as it was in the ancient world. And uh, so we, we understand that there was a persecution going on. Now, whether this persecution had culminated to that level yet, we don't know. Scholars aren't sure if it was right during that period, right before it started, or right after. I mean, uh, we know that Peter was killed during this persecution. So Peter is riding from Rome. Some people think Paul is dead because he has some of Paul's normal traveling companions with him. And he's, he's riding, though, to the church that is dispersed throughout Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. He lays it out, Cappadocia, Bithynia. These are all concentrated in what is now Turkey. And he, he wants us to understand that we are strangers in this world, but he wants us to understand that as we go through this, we have to remember to keep some things in mind. And the first point is this. We need to be remembering that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. That's why he says the elect exiles in the dispersion. Now, the word dispersion in Greek is diasporos, which literally means scattering seed. And it's a picture of the Jews in the Old Testament. The Jews had been exiled from their land different times. The, the nation had split into two during a civil war, and then you had the northern kingdoms, um, the ten tribes, and you had the southern kingdoms. And the, the two nations were always, it's still one nation, but two different divisions were always at enmity with God, turning to idolatry time and time again. And the ten northern tribes, finally God said enough, he allowed the Assyrians to come against them and take them into exile where they are never heard from again in 722 B.C. But you'd think that her sister Judah would learn about it, the southern kingdom. But they didn't. They turned from God as well. And in 586 B.C., he sends Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to, uh, to destroy the city, basically, tear down their temple, and then take them into exile, where they are for 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied about. And then after 70 years is up, there are three different groups that return under the leaderships of Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah in about 445 B.C. And they go to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the walls of the city. But not everybody had returned. Many of the Jews were still dispersed throughout different parts of the world. So Peter is using this language because he's saying to you, he's saying to us, that we are now the Israel of God. Not that we have replaced Israel, ethnic Israel, but we are now spiritual Israel. By faith in him, we are, we are recipients of the promise that was made to the Jewish race and the purpose for the Jewish race, which was to be a light unto the nations, and it was produced the Messiah who would be the Savior of the world. And by faith in him, we are now called the Israel of God. That's what Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. He says, you're now the Israel of God. Now, we haven't replaced, again, ethnic Israel. Ethnic Israel has a... Uh, a uh, a responsibility to fill within the end times, as Romans 9 through 11 states. 
However, now we are the elect exiles of God, meaning that we are God's people within this world, and we, which means that we are estranged from our true home. Now, what that means is we are sojourners in this world. Matter of fact, the term exiles is, is used to uh, talk about a foreigner in a foreign land, like an expat, someone that's away from his home country. And it's not talking about a physical, uh, like a, a, a real literal, but it's talking about a spiritual exile, that we're away from our true heartbeat, and that is God himself, to be in the very presence of God. That's what the scripture is talking about. So this world is not our home. It's not our home geographically. There's four different ways that it's not our home. It's not our home geographically. As Jesus says, look at Jesus, John chapter 14. I want to show this to you. And it was interesting. It was referred to in one of the uh, baptismal testimonies. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's saying, I'm getting your, ho your home ready. I'm preparing you. Because geographically, this world is not your home. We know that this world, as it is, it's passing away. First John says this in First John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The idea is, is abides forever in the presence of God, to be able to be in his presence at all times. And we have a very wrong character or picture of what heaven will be like. Again, we talk about it being on clouds of white with harps and big giant diapers. And that's not the way it is. It's, it's the most biggest delight and pleasure that you could ever possibly have within your life. So we understand that we are exiles just like Israel was, which means strangers, sojourners, resident aliens. So we're not only, we're not only exiled geographically, we're also exiled sociologically. Sociologically. We are to look different from this world in which we live. And I'm not talking about Amish different, like Amish weird. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, many of us have known Christians that are weird, but not a good weird. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you don't, then you might be that person. Okay? But there's like, there's like a, a good weird. There's a bad weird and there's a good weird. There's, it's a good weird in that you're living according to a different moral standard. Your life looks different. It sounds different. It even smells different. I'll get to that in a second. Now, what do I mean by that? And, and what did the early church do that made them look so different? It's fascinating to me that Pliny the Younger, who is a ruler uh, within uh, the ancient Roman world, he writes to the emperor Trajan because they're dealing with the, this, this Christian uh, infestation in his mind. And how do we deal with the Christians? And he writes back to Emperor Trajan, and he goes, how do I deal with them when I question him? How do I deal with the kids, and how do I deal with adults? Is it the same way? What about the men and the women? How do I differ to them? And then he lays out for Trajan exactly what was going on within the Christian community. I want us to see this just for a moment. It's pretty fascinating that we get this look into this. He says, they affirmed, he's giving an, an, a, some look into what the beliefs were of the early church. He says, they affirmed the whole of their guilt. They confessed to being guilty of being Christian. Or their error was that they met on a stated day before it was light. So they got up really early in the morning. So no, boring, no more being late to church, okay? Just no more being late. These guys were up before dawn. All right? Stated before it was light and addressed a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity. So they were praying, right? This is their crime. And they addressed a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity, binding themselves by a solemn oath 
not for the purposes of any wicked design, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to be, falsify their word, their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to eat in a common, a common, a harmless meal. Yeah, they should be arrested for that. But it was. The Roman world thought that was a threat. Matter of fact, he goes on to say in that letter that I tortured two women prisoners to find out if it was true, and it was. But yet they still decried it being illegal because Jesus was described as Lord, and they refused to continue on in the, the pagan ideals and morals of the Roman world. They were different. See, we are different, or we are to be different. I was talking with a young man this past week who had left Christianity, and he was talking about how his life was and how these different individuals had, had basically kind of lured him away, and he said they were really influential in leading me away from the faith, but now they want me to go back because his life's a lot different now, and he's not near as attractive. And finally, he just lamented to me, and he said, why do they care how I live my life? And I said, you know why? It's because Jesus says that when you come to know him, you become a light. You could become a light, whether you want to be or not. If you truly say that you confess Jesus, you become a light to a dark world. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I, I told him, I said, you know what? God made you a light. You're a lighthouse in the midst of a dark place. And when you turned away from Jesus, your light went dim and they couldn't find their way any longer because they looked at your life and they found hope. They might have disagreed with you, but they were convicted. And though they hated it, they hated it more that you turned away because when they saw you staying true in spite of their opposition, it gave them hope that what you had was real. And when you turned away, that showed you didn't have any real. And that made them not hope. See, God wants us to be lights in the world, and it's hard. And, and he didn't know how many people that he affected until he turned away. See, God has placed you as a light. You don't even know it at times. That people are looking at your life. You may not think you have any influence whatsoever, but people aren't necessarily looking at what you say. They're looking at what you do. And it's for all of us, and we know we all fall short. That's why we have forgiveness, and that's why we're all being sanctified in process and growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. See, God has made us to be lights. He's made us to look different, to sound different. They weren't engaging in any type of slander or adultery. Their lives, in essence, smelled. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Smell? I want you to look at this scripture with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, we smell. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, that when we, we, if you are truly in the presence of Christ, that other people will see you and interact with you and smell Christ in you. Some will love that and want to be more around you and know more about Jesus. Others are going to be, I don't want this. It smells like death to me. It's taking away my fun. So we have to understand that God has made us to be that way. 
So we're geographically exiles, we're sociologically exiles, we're also theologically exiles. Theologically exiles. God has chosen us. It says in the scripture that we are elect exiles. The Greek word for elect is electois, which is to refer to those whom God has chosen from mankind generally and to draw for himself. And it's for a reason, and that's to obey Jesus Christ. Now, before we get, up, get caught up in that age-old theological debate, did God choose you or I chose him? Yes, both are true. Okay? We have to understand what the purpose of election was. Now, Leslie Newbegin, who is a missiologist, someone who studies mission, was a missionary to India for several years, he said this, and I want to draw your attention to this quote right here. He says, the answer is to be found in the doctrine of that permeates and controls the whole of the Bible, the doctrine of election. Okay, this is a very biblical doctrine, and he lays that out, the doctrine of election. From the beginning of the Bible to its end, we are presented with the story of a universal purpose carried out through a continuous series of particular choices. God, according to the biblical picture, although he is the creator, ruler, sustainer, and judge of all peoples, does not accomplish his purpose of blessing for all peoples by means of a revealer simultaneously and equally available to all. He chooses one to be the bearer of his blessing for the many. Abraham is chosen to be the pioneer of faith and so to receive the blessing through which all nations will be blessed. Moses is chosen to be the agent of Israel's redemption. Israel is chosen to be the firstborn, or, or to be a kingdom of priests for the whole earth. The disciples are chosen that they may be fishers of men, Mark 1.17. Or in another metaphor, that they may go and bear fruit, John 15.16. The church is a body chosen to declare the wonderful deeds of God, 1 Peter 2.9. This is the pattern throughout the whole Bible. The key to the relation between Israel and the particular is God's way of election. The one or the few is chosen for the sake of the many. The particular is chosen for the sake of the universal. So in other words, what he's saying there is God chooses one to reach other people. God saved you for a reason, and that's to reach other people. Jonah is the classic example of this. Here's this Israelite that God calls to reach the pagan Ninevites, and he doesn't want to do it. And he tries to run away in a different direction. But God brings him back by having a fish, I mean, causing a storm to, to come up. Jonah is then cast overboard, a fish comes and swallows him, and he thinks about how disobedient he'd been. That God had called him for a purpose, and that's to reach those that were far away. And then he repents, the, the fish vomits him up, and then he goes and speaks to the Ninevites and sees the greatest mass revival in world history. As he goes through, speaks, speaks just a few words, repent. Judgment is coming, basically. And the entire city responds in repentance and faith. See, God has called us to give, give the word to the nations. He saved you for a reason. And it's to go and reach other people. That's, that shows how else we are different. We're not only different geographically, sociologically, and theologically. We are different missionally in that we have a purpose for living now. God has given us a purpose. And that's to do good works, to reach the nations, to suffer, to live and love in the name of Christ. Newbegin again, he says this, to be chosen, to be elect, does not mean that the elect are the saved and the rest are the lost. To be elect in Christ Jesus, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission into the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for this whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruits of his blessed kingdom which is for all. It means, therefore, 
as the New Testament makes abundantly clear, to take our share in his suffering, to bear the scars of the passion. It means, as Paul says elsewhere, to bear in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of the risen Jesus may be manifest and made available to others. It means that this particular body of people who bear the name of Jesus through history, this strange and often absurd company of people so feeble, so foolish, so often fatally compromised with the world, this body with all of its contingency and particularity is the body which is the responsibility of bearing the secret of God's reign through world history. The logic of election is all of one piece with the logic of the gospel. God's purpose of salvation is not that we should be taken out of history or taken out of the world and related to him in some way which bypasses the specificities and particularities of history. His purpose is that in and through history there should be brought into being that which is symbolized in the vision with which the Bible ends, the holy. And of course, this is the crux of the matter, that consummation can only lie on the other side of death and resurrection. It is the calling of, church, of the church to bear through history to its end the secret of the lordship of the crucified. In other words, God has purposed us to have the Christ, of the life of Christ manifested through us. That by faith, we take up our cross and carry it daily that we identify supremely with him. And we see that in, exemplified and represented through baptism. We see it, see it also worked out in daily life. That's why Jesus says, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him take up his cross daily. Deny himself and follow me. We deny ourselves. In other words, we realize that we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. And that, as Romans 6, chapter 6 says, that we are to now walk in newness of life. We have a new life. And the scriptures have said, behold, you are a new creation. So that's what we are to do. God has given us for a purpose. He has called us to be different geographically, sociologically, theologically, and also missionally. The purpose of our life is different. But, Peter wants us also to know that God has called us to tell other people through him and that though we are exiles from our heavenly home, we'll be leaving uh, this world at a point, but until then, we are to obey Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 for a moment. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. See, God calls us to be beneficiaries of his son's sacrifice so that we might go forth making his name known by our good works, by our words, and by suffering. Suffering is one of the hallmarks of coming to Jesus. Don't think that when you come to Jesus, you lose suffering. It's actually the opposite case. You'll suffer more. As, as it says in the book of Acts, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And in the book of Timothy, we see that all who seek to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? It's so that people can see Jesus in us. That when we suffer on behalf of the name of Jesus by refusing to give in, to the temptations around us, by enduring hardship, by continually speaking the name of Christ, persecution comes, and then people go, how could they do that? How could they endure such hostility? How could they endure such opposition and persecution and mistreatment? How could they do that? And they look at Jesus more. They see that Jesus is real in your life. So when you're at work and persecution comes, you should be honored. Because God has called you in your workplace or your classroom or your family to endure opposition so that his name might be manifest through you. That's one of the greatest ways we can evangelize people. 
is telling people about who Jesus is and then suffering on behalf of that. So we are to be different geographically, sociologically, theologically, and missionally. But we need to understand that while we are, we are away from this world, we have to find where, where is our hope in the middle of this. Just like when I'm in India, where am I going to run if I have problems? The embassy, right? The embassy. Well, where do we run as believers while we're exiled from, from the, our heavenly home? Part of it's the church. Part of it is the word of God. And people, Paul, or Peter wants us to understand, to know where our hope is found. He wants us to understand that. Where is your hope found? Where do you go? Where do you need to recall and remember in the middle of this? Well, he, he lays out uh, several or three different things here. First of all, we need to understand that we have been chosen by the Father. Peter writes, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See, the, inter interesting enough, the Greek word for foreknowledge is prognosin. We get the word prognosis. Prognosin, it means knowing beforehand, foreknowledge, but it has a greater meaning. It's much more than knowing what will happen in the future. It also means prearrangement. See, if for God to know something that's going to happen in the future means that is ordained to happen. And if it's ordained to happen, that means that he had to have made it happen. He doesn't just see what's going to happen without ordaining all that's going to come to pass. God is so much greater than that. He has chosen us for a reason. That means if we are chosen, that means we can undergo any hostility whatsoever. If God's seal is upon us, that gives us hope. He's not going to take that away. That we've been chosen. Even Jesus said, he goes, they're in my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. Once that you come to know Jesus Christ, you are in his hand. No one can pull it out. It's like that game I used to play with my dad when I was a kid. You ever play that game where your dad said, you can have the money if you can pull it out of my hand? My dad was a mechanic. There's no way that I was pulling it out of his hand. I just kicked and pulled, and he'd just smile. You know? God's hand is infinitely stronger. Once we're in, we're in his hand, we can't be taken out. We can't. We've been chosen by the Father, which means that no matter what happens to us, it's not going to affect our eternal state. I love Justin Martyr. He wrote in his first apology, what is known as his first apology, early church history. You're talking about a guy that lived between 100 and 165 A.D., one of the earliest uh, followers of Christ. In this letter, he writes, he says, If you also read these words in a hostile spirit, you can do, do no more, as I said before, than kill us. <laughs> you can only kill us. That's okay. If you don't like what we have to say, that's fine. You kill us. But, which indeed does no harm to us. I love that. Does no harm to us, but to you and all who unjustly hate us and who do not repent brings eternal punishment by fire. In other words, you can kill us, but you can't hurt us. Why? Because he had eternal understanding that his heavenly home was waiting. He goes, you're just giving me a quick ticket home. That's it. You're not going to change my destination. You're just allowing me to get there faster. So we see that we've been chosen by the Father. And God is working even the sufferings for his, re his own purposes. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And, then, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
See, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son for a purpose, and that is to tell others. We're to be beneficiaries of his atoning death. The blood of his son would be sprinkled on us. Sprinkled, that's why we see here, sprinkling with his blood. The word sprinkling is rantisman. It carries the idea of purification, which means that we may be purified or cleansed from guilt. How many of you like to be cleansed by guilt and shame, from your guilt and shame? I think we all have guilt. And not just the guilt of things that we have done, but also the shame of things that have been done to us. See, that's the magnificent thing about Jesus' death. So often we talk about, talk about taking, taking the guilt away from the things we have done, and he does. But there's also the things that have been done to us, the hurt, the pain. So often we think that God's grace, we say it's for everyone, and his forgiveness is for everyone, but all too often there comes a crime so heinous that we say there's no more forgiveness. But we fail to understand that God's gift and his grace is so much greater than us. And his atoning work was for the greatest and the worst, no matter how bad it is. Because when we say that it's not for someone else, we fail to realize how bad we really are. We often so, often so much think that we're just not that bad. We're just bad enough, but we're not that bad. The scripture's pretty clear. We're all in the same boat. Every boat's sinking. They're all going down. We all don't have hope. Some holes might just be bigger than the other, but they're still taking on water. We're all going down. We have to understand that we've been chosen by the Father and that we've not only been chosen, but we've also been cleansed by the Son. That's what he says. For the sprinkling of his blood, we have been cleansed. It it was a one-time thing, not an over and over thing. It was a one-time thing that his death was sufficient for all time, past, present, and future, to pay for your sins and mine. That he suffered pain, that he took it in our stead, and that we are cleansed by his blood. Now, he also says here that we, we do find hope in that, that God's not through with us yet. Does that give you hope? That gives me hope. God's not through with us yet. That's what I loved about these people giving their testimonies. They're still admitting that they struggle. All too often we think that a person gets saved, now they're holier than thou, or they're getting baptized and they think they're all cleansed from their sins, and it's like the literal act of baptism in their minds actually saves them, and it doesn't. You know, it's like Sam Houston once said, the, the, the great Texan. He got baptized, and, the, and he said, they, they told him, Sam, your sins are washed away, and he said, God help the It's not that that actually does it. No, Christ's death and resurrection enabled that to happen. That is the outward symbol of an inward reality that occurred. And that we now, though we are forgiven, we know that we're still going to fall. We're all in process. But we continue to have the image of Christ conformed within us as we grow in our sanctification. That we know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, not only of what we have done, but what it comes in the future. That's why we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Holy, as 1 John says. And that if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just, to forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. Now, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We're not to willingly continue in sin knowing that I'm just going to ask for it later. That's not what the scripture tells us to do. We have to understand that we've been changed or cleansed by the Son. That's what it means there in sanctification, the sanctification of the Spirit. The word for sanctification is hagiosmos, which means holiness, sanctification, which means being set apart, gradually being made holy. And with a preposition in or by that's there, it becomes an instrumental. 
which means that it is by the Spirit of God that we are sanctified. It's not referring to the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit of God that produces sanctification and makes us holy. Now, there's two types of sanctification. There's positional sanctification, the moment that you come to know Jesus Christ, that you are positionally holy in the sight of God, that when God sees you, he sees his son. There's also progressive sanctification. That's why we read, and we're going to study in the next few weeks, we are to be holy as he is holy. So we are holy in the sight of God, but yet we are also to grow in holiness that the life of Jesus might be manifested within each one of us. So we've been, been changed by the Father, or chosen by the Father, cleansed by the Son, and changed by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit changes us. You can write that down. We've been changed by the Spirit. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're brand new. You're not the same person that you were before. You went from death to life. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have a new heart. We've often uh, shared the story in here about Kendall, uh, uh, Linda Brandt's granddaughter who had to have a heart transplant. She was one. And I remember, we've talked about this before, but I remember being at the hospital when we are getting the phone call that said we have a heart available for Kendall. She needed a heart transplant. And at one hand, we were, over, we were overjoicing, but at the other time, we're sorrowing because we knew that some child had to die in order for her to have that heart. We went to the hospital, and we're waiting for when the heart arrives. And then what happens after she gets that new little heart? There's always the danger of what? It being rejected, right? Do you know that Jesus died to give us a new heart? But our old flesh wants to reject it. Wants to reject it. Because that flesh is still there, that old flesh, and there's still that danger for Kendall. There's always that danger for us. Of us giving into our flesh and feeding the flesh and rejecting that new heart. That's why we must continue to walk and crucify that flesh daily. And learn to walk in the newness of life. So we have been changed by the Spirit. And that spirit helps us. When we go to him, we may not feel like it. We might be tired. We don't want to do it any longer. We have to remember, as Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27 says, Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not even know how to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, as long as we are away from our heavenly home, we're going to need help. Peter knew that, which is why he said, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As exiles, it's imperative that we understand that we're to be finding help in our time of need, in the here and now. We need to be finding help. We need help. That's why Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The word there for multiplied is it's an heiress, which, um, passive, which means that God himself is going to give you this grace during this time of struggle and persecution that you have awaiting you. He's going to multiply it to you. He's going to give you help in your time of need, in the here and now, when you call upon him. That's what he's saying right there. It means that we, as exiles, we need to understand that we need God's undeserved favor. Do you need grace? Yes, we all do. We all need grace. We need grace in that time of need, that undeserved favor. We can't earn our way to God. So often we think that we can. We come to know Jesus, and we, then we try to live by works. We're always trying to earn God's favor, earn his, his, him to, 
him to be pleased. That's not what we do because it's not by works that we are saved. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. For if by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. God gives it to you, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We need grace. We, need, we know that when we sin, we need to know that there's forgiveness, and that forgiveness comes through Jesus' death. They enabled us to have grace. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's why we don't continue in sin that grace may abound. That's why Romans chapter 5 right here says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign to righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he understood that we would need grace, but he also needs, we need so, knows that we need something else. And that's grace and peace. That is an unshakable foundation. We need peace in tough times. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27. Look at this verse. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give peace. Do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace anchors us. And speaking of the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 through 15, Paul says that we're to stand, therefore, with our feet fastened with the belt of truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. See, the picture there is of a Roman soldier wearing cleats. That when the onslaught would come, you had traction. It's like ever, anybody ever played football without cleats on on a wet surface? You're slipping. No matter how hard you're hit, that just means you're going to slide. But if you've got cleats on, you can take that hit. You can shed it and keep going on. Have our feet shod or shed with the gospel of peace. That's why Paul said that we have this abiding peace, a peace, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, while we are strangers, we need undeserved favor and an unshakable foundation. We continue on until we get home. We continue to fight the good fight. Just this, the story of these baptisms, these are the beginning, not the end. They're the starting line. They're the means of identification, showing them that we're in, we've already been brought into the race. We will continue on until we get home. As C.S. Lewis said, I love this quote, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. For glory means good rap report with God, a report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door in which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We shall get home, going to be with, in glory with God. I want to conclude with this little story that I remember reading. Perhaps you've heard of it. 
Ray Stedman tells about the story about an old missionary couple that had been serving in Africa for about 40 years. That they made their way home from Africa. They took a boat to get to England. And from England, they boarded another boat. And on this boat, they, unbeknownst to them, was the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. He'd just been out of office for about a year. He was finishing off an expedition that he had, uh, that he'd been on in Africa in 1910. And there was a big party to see him off. The bands had come out, and they had, they had had all these streamers flying. And it bothered the, the husband, of the, mission, the missionary husband. So they make their way back, and, and what greets them is something that even bothers him even more. It's a huge ticker tape parade. The mayor's there. All of these different people are seeing them. And he said, it's not fair. It's not fair. Here this guy is. He's... He's the president of the United States, and he just comes back from a big game safari, and all these people are celebrating him, but there's no one at all to greet us. And his wife says, honey, you need to deal with God on this. Why don't you go talk to God? So he goes into the room, and he comes back in a little while, and he's got a smile on his face. And she says, what happened? He goes, well, God took care of it. She said, well, what did he say? He said, honey, he told me that we're not home yet. Though he came home and he got that homecoming party, this isn't our home. And though we might suffer for a while and we look for earthly, earthly adulations and jubilations and parties and festivities and praise, that doesn't come until we reach our heavenly home. When we see the eyes of the one who made us, when we stare into his presence and we see the marks on his hands and on his feet, the mark on his side that bear the marks of his love for us, and he has his arms wide open and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your glory. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And you know that's available to everyone without exception, that if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, that he will save you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter what family members you have, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he will receive you unto himself, that you believe that he died on the cross in your place and place your faith in him, you'll have new life. He offers it to you. And for those of us that have been in Christ, he says, continue to press on. Find grace and help in your time of need that you were sojourners for a time and that one day you will enter into your true home and we'll celebrate together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you thanking you for what you've done. And Lord, today, if there's someone here who has not yet trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you might touch their heart to receive you as Lord and Savior of their life. That they might, by faith, confess with their mouth that you are Lord and believe in their heart and that you will save them. Lord, give them the grace to bear up, the peace to transcend. As persecution undoubtedly comes, as friends and family members seek to understand, may they be truly light set on a hill. And Lord, may they freely take their place as the elect exiles that we all are. So, Lord, help us to look forward in faith to the day that we will enter into your presence when we shall be home. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Lord, glorify yourself in our midst. And, Lord, bless those who seek to follow you. Give us the grace to bear up underneath all of the hardships and circumstances we face. And let your name be evident in each one of our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.